the trick here is to make sure you've resourced it properly. Now, again, in BC, you have some great initiatives that were established through Jason's uh, Kerr's activities, uh, getting that nurse uh, paid for through when you're using that person for inflammatory joint disease. You can, I think, parlay that into a really good uh, support system for doing these kinds of activities. People have a mistake when they try and do these real-world evidence activities cohorts by their lonesome. After you've got your 20th patient in, it is impossible. You just cannot believe how much work there is, and you don't want to do it. And so you have to resource properly, and we've been able to do that, to ensure that you're not only that you're enrolling patients, but you have robust data. And again, I have improved my management of patients by participating. So I have learned how to care for patients better. As I told you earlier, when I first uh, trained with Daphna, I left Toronto with a little homunculus thing of what I do. I collect three, three data points, you know, tender, swollen joints and grip strength. That's a, a Toronto thing and morning stiffness. And now I collect morning stiffness and grip strength and four PROs and two questionnaires on a routine basis on every patient. And that informs me. My name is Carter Thornton. I'm a rheumatologist in Newmarket, Ontario, and you're listening to the Skin and Joints Podcast. All right, so welcome back to the Skin and Joints Podcast. This is your co-host, Aaron Sahoda, and uh, today I'll be joined by Dr. Ashley Yip, who is a rheumatology fellow. Uh, you've heard her voice on previous episodes. She'll be joining us in a few seconds, but we have a really unique conversation today. We're looking at the world of biosimilars. So we know that Ontario has taken a major step forward to the start of their transition period a few months ago, and we've got the inside scoop with Ontario-based rheumatologist Dr. Carter Thorne, who's going to look into the fascinating world of real-world evidence for biosimilar therapies, emerging trends, and the value it can have on your individual practice. He has a lot of experience with setting up cohorts and being involved with collecting real-world data, including local, provincial, and national models of care. Dr. Thorne's also an assistant professor at the University of Toronto and a consultant staff at South Lake Regional Health Centre in Newmarket, Ontario, where he was the chief of the Division of Rheumatology and director of the arthritis program. He's been president of the Canadian Rheumatology Association, and Dr. Thorne has been recognized for his work with the CRA's Distinguished Rheumatologist Award with the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal. Super cool. Uh, so part one of our conversation today with Dr. Thorne, we'll look at the value of real-world evidence in biosimilar therapies to help inform daily clinical practice decisions. And uh, part two will focus on the biosimilar switch experience from the ground. So we'll look at switch data. We'll look at uh, the impact of RWE on therapeutic decision-making for inflammatory joint management as this is the Skin and Joints podcast, and what these insights mean for you as frontline healthcare providers, and how to effectively transition patients in your clinic and integrate the transition into your workflow successfully. So here's our conversation with Dr. Carter Thorne. Okay, Carter, tell us something about yourself that our viewers may not know about you. Well, funny you should ask that, Ashley. You know, in my years, I've done a lot of medical school uh, application interviews and rheumatology interviews. And I'm always so impressed that people have got five papers and looked after people with AIDS in Africa. Uh, when I was in medical school, I didn't have a job after our first year I got married. And I was walking down up Church Street and I saw the sign saying provincial morgue. And when I was in my bachelor's degree, bachelor of science at McGill, I was working in an ambulance service in St. Catharines. And I was doing some deaning, which is the assisting at postmortems in St. Catharines. So I went up to the provincial morgue, not realizing what that building was all about. It was an old Victorian building. 
And I said, I'm a medical student and I need a job. And I've done postmortems before. Can I have a job? So I did that. And you may or may not know that the provincial morgue is actually the one that looks after legal cases. So it was two summers of working with people who were burned or shot or in a car accidents or found in a swamp or that sort of stuff. And it was very much a Colombo kind of thing. Got the cops showing up and all that kind of stuff. Characters working around us. And I learned a lot about anatomy at that time, or the absence of anatomy in some cases. Became very expert at harvesting pituitary glands and uh, learning a lot about forensic pathology. So that was a really interesting time. Pretty impactful. <clears throat> I don't usually have nightmares, but I'll tell you, I used to have faces floating in front of me from time to time. But it did give me great confidence learning about stuff that I never had ever anticipated learning about. And that set me up for the future in terms of being open to stuff, new information, new challenges, new problems, and trying to solve them. Very cool. I was secretly hoping that you'd be a sticker collector, but that <laughs> is a cool factor uh, behind what you just shared with us that this it hits way, way higher. So that's very, very interesting. Now, along those lines, tell us about your childhood. What experiences do you think led you to becoming a rheumatologist? Any one experience when you look back at your career, at your life, that's like, ah, you know, that kind of pivoted me to learning more about the field and getting yeah. interested in rheumatology. Well, you know, <clears throat> I'll tell you, I didn't know anything about rheumatology. I always wanted to be a doctor. I have no idea where that came from. I had an uncle, a maternal uncle who was a doctor in Quebec City. My mother's French-Canadian. But because of the distances at that time, we really, really never knew him. But I always wanted to be a physician or a teacher, one or, one or the other. For those that don't know, the doctor origin is actually teacher, right? That's the word. Doctor meant teacher, not medicine. And my two experiences in rheumatology as in my learning phase as a medical student and clinical clerk were actually not very positive. But I had the great pleasure and opportunity to work with a gentleman by the name of Metro Grizzolo. He's the gentleman who started the Journal of Rheumatology. And uh, that year, I sat and did a rheumatology elective at Wellesley Hospital, which had the largest RDU, rheumatic disease unit in Canada, 40 beds. And most of those beds were full of people that had lots of deformities. At that time, we had sort of gold and plaquenil antimalarials, prednisone, that was it, and anti-inflammatories. And I was really struck. There was a pretty high-end group there, but this Dr. Grislow, would sit there as the wise old man, he wasn't that old, but the wise old man, and someone would make some comment or some statement of fact, and he would just cut right to the chase. And just without being negative or, you know, grandiose, just ask that question. I said, wow, that is so marvelous. And that one month on that service, 1976, just made all the difference. And that was the year he started. He was the chair of the Pan-American League of Rheumatology. And it was in Toronto. And he announced the opening of the Journal of Rheumatology, the start of it, at that time. So I was there during the opening of that thing. And more recently, I just finished 10 years on the board of directors of the Journal of Rheumatology. So it goes around. And I learned how to count when I was in rheumatology training with Daphna Gladman. I was the first psoriatic arthritis fellow with Daphna when she was at Women's. <clears throat> and I learned how to score x-rays. I learned how to ask questions in a meaningful fashion. I learned how to use outcomes to the benefit of patients and programs. And I was one of the fellows who started PARO, Professional Association of Residents and Interns of Ontario. 
And <clears throat> I was the para rep to the OMA. And as in my fifth year, I was sixth year, I guess, I was fifth year, I was the uh, chief fellow. And that was the year the para went on strike. So we weren't in, in the fifth year because we were paid by the Arthritis Society. We weren't part of that striking group because we weren't paid by the ministry. But in any case, the first year folks went on strike, first year fellows. And at Wellesley, they wanted the second year guys to cover it. So based on my background, as you might suggest, I re we refused or I refused. And so the other rest of the second year people, we said, we'll do our, the job that we were set up to do. <clears throat> and uh, took a bit of heat for that one. And I said to my mentors who said, oh, this is unprofessional. I said, in five years time, you will be on strike as well. And literally five years later, the OMA went on strike. So that's kind of, I got into rheumatology in that kind of system. I did leave the, uh, even though I was chief fellow, I didn't have an interest at all in being academic, but I had an interest in academics. And uh, in those days, when you left the university, you kind of left the real world sort of thing. That was their sense. But I said to them, I think there's another world out there that can be very productive. And uh, we've actually been able to demonstrate that as we talk about real world evidence. We've, uh, we've demonstrated that. And I would say to the, my colleagues downtown that the real laboratory is out in the community. That's where the patients are. That's where our problems are. And we have lots to learn from them. That's very true. So you mentioned the real world evidence. We're going to jump in. What does the real world evidence in the biosimilar space mean to you? We, we had a little chat earlier about our organization at the Ontario Rheumatology Association. I mentioned that we engaged Health Canada way back in 2011 and spoke to members from Health Canada. I had relationships with them from other activities, and they came to our meeting. When biosimilars actually began to be offered to us, available to us in the clinic, one of the challenges was that we didn't really know, even though we knew all the theories behind biosimilars. And at the time that, for instance, British Columbia accepted biosimilars, we were going to be shortly thereafter, but it didn't happen because of COVID. The evidence all came from somewhere else usually from Europe, it was pretty, pretty solid and pretty consistent, but they weren't our patients. And so real world, the, the basis of biosimilars is that there is less clinical evidence associated with them. Lots of the other evidence that show that they're similar or very similar, thus they had to call them biosimilar because they're more than generics. And in that regard, we really didn't know how they would perform. I had the opportunity to work with our European colleagues, and they were quite comfortable with it. And there was a lot of shifting around, but in a different environment than we have here. At that time, most of the biosimilars that had been approved were infusions, and they were always exclusively happening in hospitals or other healthcare facilities as part of the general system. So the rheumatologist really just ordered a molecule, and it was delivered somewhere in the vicinity by someone that wasn't them which is different than the Canadian model and certainly different than the American model. And uh, they would say that, you know, it changes from time to time and there has been no blowback from the patients. And then as we uh, in Canada had more approvals, and then again, BC led, led the path for our group, we got evidence and some really good advice, and we know this was happening, and we could give uh, reassurance to our members with regard to real-world evidence. So as you know, BC sort of provided, our rheumatologists, I should say, kind of insinuated within the original declaration or planning that the government ministry would allow patients to return to the medication, the originator, if there was a, a serious demonstrable problem. 
Now, that's a big leap of faith because there's a, there can be bad actors there who are looking for things to fail and want you to go back. But the good news, again, first real-world evidence that was really impactful for me, it was with that very open approach, the return to originator was less than 1%, which was much less than anyone thought would happen. So that's one of the real-world evidences. Now, when you got, when British Columbia and then Alberta developed their programs, the real evidence was starting to accumulate. And uh, there are ongoing real-world evidence programs in, on, in Canada. You're probably familiar with them, Ashley. So one that I've been involved with for the past 17 years is the Canadian Early Arthritis Cohort Catch, uh, which has about 37, 3,800 patients. In Newmarket, we actually account for about 600 of those patients, and I myself account for 200 of them. So we have a lot of experience with real-world evidence. And I also work with the Ontario Best Practices Research Initiative, and those are established patients with RA. So I had another couple hundred patients in that particular program. And then we uh, collaborated with a couple of other registries, particularly Room Data out of Montreal of Denis Choquette, which is also being used in Quebec City and Trois-Rivières, and brought those together with Sasha Bernatsky, who's at McGill, a rheumatologist. You may know her. She's an epi kind of person, does metadata, who had a contract with Health Canada to look at adversity. Uh, and related to biosimilars. So we pulled all these because these are the results from these different uh, cohorts, which were very good because we had them very well characterized. And the OBRI is actually linked with with, uh, Institute for Clinical and Evaluative Sciences. That's the uh, administrative data set in Ontario, so the metadata. And they can look at uh, other data, those pieces of it. So that's kind of the real world data. And the value there is that it is very consistent with some of the more formal studies that have been done in Europe, which in those instances, those jurisdictions, as you may know, Ashley, actually mandated by the governments to the the pharmaceutical industry that, that the companies would support the usually the national organization to run registries. And now we had uh, activities where we could demonstrate very similar outcomes without any of the uh, potential problems that might have developed. And this has been very consistent, you know, whether you're talking about uh, loss of benefit or different interactions or new adversity or that kind of stuff. So I think the real world data has been very helpful and very consistent. And it's what we thought it would be. And considering the amount of research that has gone into developing the consistency of the biosimilars, you might be aware that a generic molecule, a small molecule, and Aaron is more familiar with this than I, only has about five or eight different touch points that have to be similar and only about 75% similarity to the innovator. Whereas this one has, I think, 26 or 28 areas of similarity. So these are so similar uh, that they're more, as you probably are aware now, they're more similar than the innovator product to what's you know being distributed by the companies 20 years later as still an innovator molecule. So real-world data has been very supportive of the fact that these medications can be used, that we can very confidently uh, share with our patients that they are not exposing themselves uh, to risk. One of the most frequent things we hear is, Doc, I'm doing so well. It took me so long to find this very successful medication. I said, we haven't lost a successful medication. We just changed the box color. And I think we can say that with, in a kind of, I don't want to be flippant about it, but we want to say it in a comfortable fashion that they can understand. And just as sometimes the box color changes for the innovator, as a for instance, these other things do change. 
And indeed, for instance, adalimumab, which uh, you know started with one biosimilar, now we're up to six or eight of them. There's other qualities to the molecule that we've learned subsequently, as you may know, and those are differentiating from the innovator. And so the innovator product available to us uh, in Canada is not necessarily the same innovator product that's available, for instance, in the U.S., or the needle's not as big and that kind of stuff. It's really a big difference because now I don't have any hesitancy when my, my day comes up. Uh, so I think uh, there's actually been some, I can't, we can't call them improvements because improvement means that it has to be, it's, diff it's different, but the delivery device can, has made some differences for our patients for sure. You mentioned sort of the living laboratory that we have in community real world practice, and you touched on what real world evidence is and what role it plays, but how important do you think for a clinician's therapeutic decision-making real world evidence, how important is it in terms of their overall decision-making? And is there any specific sort of example that you can share with us and just along the theme around adalimumab, for example, if I'm a clinician looking to prescribe one over the other, and I'm trying to compare how two of these molecules work in the real world and look at sort of registry data, how important is that to the conversation? Yeah. You know, there's been a lot of information about the value of innovative therapies and some of it's kind of misinformation. And when a person hears something and they have a loyalty to a particular product, an experience of loyalty. So their real world evidence limited to themselves is very powerful for them. Like, I don't want to rock the boat. It's easy what I'm doing. Uh, I think what we have to understand is that the role of biosimilars is really to make space for new medications. And I think that's a really key point. And there has been some talk amongst biosimilars that we're going to be able to prescribe it more often because it's less expensive. I've always pushed back on that notion. We haven't changed the criteria. We've only changed the expense. And I was just reading an article about a new IL-23 by one of the innovator companies, which is knocking the socks off of some of the other IL-23s and psoriasis. It's also used for inflammatory bowel disease and things like that. If I was the government and you didn't want to have a biosimilar experience, I'd say, well, wait for that IL-23 to become a biosimilar before we allow it here. Or we can make space for that new biosimilar for that new innovation, I should say, by allowing biosimilars to join the market. This is a normal evolution. Everyone expected it. It should be it's already factored into cost. We should feel all comfortable that the real-world evidence is supportive of the hypothesis that these molecules, which are extremely similar, are going to behave in an extremely similar fashion, and that any setbacks that are, are perceived in your practice if they happen after the first three months, that's probably just the normal attrition that happens with stuff. And uh, we mentioned real-world evidence as something that is, you know, acquired in different practices, but not mine. And I would suggest to individuals, and I was, when Ashley and I were speaking earlier, we were talking about where our learnings came from. Uh, I treat every patient as an N equals one experiment. And I make sure that at the time that I make a decision to change a therapy, to discard a therapy, that I'll never ever consider that, that therapy again, with exceptions, but by and large. Unfortunately, I hear as a, for instance, a patient wanted to be on a biologic because they hated methotrexate. Well, methotrexate as a molecule actually behaves much better than almost any biologic. 
And that's why 70% of people are on methotrexate, as a for instance. So as a physician, my real-world evidence begins in my practice, looking at patients and how they're doing. And by participating in other studies, I become more confident in my decisions and working with my colleagues and seeing what they're doing. So real-world evidence, I, I, I will say, begins in, the, in your practice, extends beyond that. And uh, when you're looking for uh, guidance, our organization, the Canadian Rheumatology Association, I think has been very proactive in that regard with position papers and such things to help our members uh, much more than I think any other national organization. You mentioned a number of cohorts like the CATCH cohort that you've been involved in and other cohorts you have patients in. Is there a, like a preferred cohort for real-world evidence to look at, especially for people like me who I don't have my own cohort yet? Uh, that's a good question. You know, so they require a bit of background, but uh, I must say again in the Canadian context, these are national cohorts and people can raise their hand and join. The trick here is to make sure you've resourced it properly. Now, again, in BC, you have some great initiatives that were established through Jason's uh, Kerr's activities, uh, getting that nurse uh, paid for through when you're using that person for inflammatory joint disease. You can, I think, parlay that into a really good uh, support system for doing these kinds of activities. People have a mistake when they try and do these real-world evidence activities cohorts by their lonesome. It After you've got your 20th patient in, it is impossible. You just cannot believe how much work there is, and you don't want to do it. And so you have to resource properly, I think, and we've been able to do that, to ensure that you're not only that you're enrolling patients, but you have robust data. And again, I have improved my management of patients by participating, so I have learned how to care for patients better. As I told you earlier, when I first uh, trained with Daphna, I left Toronto with a little homunculus thing of what I do. I collect three, three data points, you know, tender, swollen joints and grip strength. That's a, a Toronto thing and morning stiffness. And now I collect morning stiffness and grip strength and four PROs and two questionnaires on a routine basis on every patient. And that informs me. Some people say that kind of information is just too much noise for me. And then I have to ask them other questions. I think one of the problems we fit, deal with, and I think Aaron probably appreciates this, in chronic disease, Management is complicated by non-adherence. And especially these days, when I was going into practice, the average patient with RA was a young woman, 35 years of age, who had no comorbidities. Now they're 57 years old. They're now postmenopausal. Men are postmenopausal. They're hypertensive. They have truncal obesity. They're insulin resistant. They're on four or five medications for their lipid-lowering, antihypertensive, diabetic management stuff and you just gave them triple therapy. So there is a problem there. And I think the strategy is that you have to share with individuals a behavioral modification trial, a sort of standard, and understand why patients don't take medications. Most often they're not taking because they don't like them, they're just taking them because they don't like medications, period. We have to be aware of that, respond to that, and engage the patient in our cohort for catch, we have one of the lowest penetration rates of biologics, but also the highest penetration rate of monotherapy successfully. We also have the highest rate of, uh, of medication-free remissions that are extending four and a half to five years, and uh, quite strikingly so. 
So these things, I think, are a reflection not only of medications selected, but actually the fact that patients take them. So that's part of real-world evidence. Real-world evidence just isn't about biosimilars. It's about caring for patients and uh, listening to patients. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, there's many factors into how patients kind of are accepting of a therapy. There's behavioral. I like to say as healthcare providers, we're in the business of behavior change. Uh, and behavior is very difficult to change because it's also assessing preconceived notions and how the patient experience has been with the healthcare system in the past. If it's been negative, they might have uh, less likelihood to trust you and mm -hmm. what you're saying. Just following up with what Ashley said about real world evidence in terms of the credibility, how you kind of grade it in terms of what you would look for, like a practice audit versus uh, case studies in a, a certain site or group of sites. How do you sift through what's most meaningful for you? Well, there's the Mission Impossible-like music cue. Sorry, you'll have to tune into part two dropping this Thursday. Also, you guys forgot to mention, just like every other episode, a reminder, we kind of have to say this. The opinions expressed on the Skin and Joints podcast are for educational purposes only and for licensed healthcare providers and do not constitute nor replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult with your healthcare provider if you have any concerns or questions about your health. Thank you to Sandoz for supporting today's episode of the pod. Let's chat soon.